Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. So that's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Lynn Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be taking a look at current developments in the world of science and technology. Also joining us is Jeff Raskin, who will talk about the Apple Macintosh computer. In addition, we can find out what's in chocolate. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. to Berkeley Rocks. This is Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Lindley. How's it going? I'm pretty good. <laughs> so, actually, wow, we've actually sprouted another person again. Another person? We must be productive this year, huh? <laughs> so it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. Yeah, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. For our listeners out there, uh, we have a new correspondent on the program, uh, Ms. Lynn Lee. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a graduate student at the Department of Chemistry. Well, I'm also chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> and I work with Richard Sickley, and I do some microscopy work and laser work. So. What kind of things do you study then with that? Um, we actually study a variety of samples. We look at biological samples and material science samples. So. Gamut of things. Mm-hmm. Yep. So do you use a goggle when you look at the lasers? We don't. Oh. <laughs> we don't tell anybody. <laughs> safety first. I thought it was safety first. <laughs> well, well, a laser jock if you wear goggles. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I guess you're here with us uh, today to, to tell us a little about the story here. Yeah, so did you know that some mammals can actually selectively alter their offspring's sexual identity? That sounds almost cruel. I think, I think that's good news <laughs> for, like, the, the couples out there in San Francisco. <laughs> Yeah. Probably yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stuart West and Ben Sheldon, UK scientists, have found evidence of zebras, bisons, and other mammals can actively adjust their sex of their offspring. And it really depends on the mother's condition right before birth. If she's mm. strong, then she will more likely to produce sons. And if she's in poor condition, then she'll more likely produce daughters. I hope yeah. this is not analogous to how humans develop. <laughs> I guess your mom was strong then, huh? <laughs> My mom was weak. <laughs> so what kind of mechanism is causing this? don't know if it's a chemical mechanism mm-hmm. or what, but they believe that basically when the mother in stronger conditions, the reason why they produce more likely to produce sons is that the strong sons will mate. Ah. Whereas mm. daughters, whether they're weak or strong, will always mate. That's true. So the mothers in poor conditions will more likely produce daughters because because their weak sons will have a less chance to mate. I think that's just sort of generally the case for uh, wow. males anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yep. So if you're interested in reading more of this, it's in the American Naturalist. And again, the scientists are Stuart West from the University of Edinburgh and Ben Sheldon from Oxford University.
What happens when your nose color changes? Like mm. into bright red? <laughs> well, I don't know what color your nose uh, is typically. Yeah, when I get drunk. Well, what if uh, when your nose color changed, you were allowed to be hunted by uh, voracious tigers or pure game hunters? Maybe it would just fall off. <laughs> this is actually a proposal that was put out by uh, a group of uh, Africa's national park uh, officials. They want to allow people to hunt older tigers after a given amount of time. So the idea is that they want to actually target the older male tiger population because at that point they're beyond breeding and they're no longer contributing to that ecosystem. Talk about age discrimination. <laughs> but, I mean, this is apparently uh, what they think of as a win-win situation because people want to keep like, the uh, lion preserves there, obviously to preserve the lions, but uh, at the same time they have to balance it for people who actually want trophies. Lion skins. Right. <laughs> but the trick is, of course, is how do you identify these older lions? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the lions actually have different colored noses as they get older. Really? All you have to do is spot the one with the uh, bright nose and you know you've got a good one. Uh-oh. I've never it's ripe. So what about those colorblind? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Interesting proposal, and anyone who's interested in learning more about it, they can check out a recent edition of Science Now. So did you get the secret report? Which report would that be? The one from the Pentagon, of course. What? <laughs> so there's a report that leaked out saying that the greatest threat coming to the United States is not going to be terrorism or religious uh, jihad or whatnot, but it's going to come in the form of global warming. Interesting. <laughs> and the Pentagon put this out. Right, but it was secretly leaked. you got to wonder what the okay. source really is trying to right. do. But in a sense, this is sort of slapped in the administration's face since they've been denying that there is a global warming problem. But what they predict is the possibility that by the year 2020, Europe could go under uh, somewhat of a permanent winter, sort of like Siberia, where Britain would be in under uh, snowy conditions. I don't think that sounds too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of Europe might be flooded. Oh, well, <laughs> more beachfront property. I guess. Oh, of course. Yeah. This sort of ties in with that uh, recent announcement. There were all those scientists that came right. and criticized the administration recently right. about their handling of science facts. Right, but this revelation comes from the fact that we've been pumping up so much carbon dioxide to the extent that we don't know what's going to happen since it's much higher than it's been for a very long time. And the effects could be devastating. We don't know, but we're going to find out sooner or later. Well, they've been saying that for years. We're knowing about this CO2 increase for quite a number of years, in fact, right? Right. But they're also worried that these effects will eventually lead to a worldwide famine or wars or people basically trying to grab each other's resources uh-huh. while they can. I think they're trying to grab each other's resources now. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of any greenhouse yeah. effects. <laughs> so this was originally reported in The Observer from London, but it is now found everywhere on the web. Well, that Pentagon report might not be such bad news for genetically modified crops. How are they uh, going to enjoy this? Mutant crops are spreading their genes far more prolifically than researchers had previously thought. Ooh, like mutant people, huh? <laughs> You've seen that movie, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, right? <laughs> This is actually an interesting finding because a group of researchers led by the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is an advocacy group in Washington, D.C., has found transgenes in many uh, types of seeds of corn, canola, and soybean, supposedly purebred lines, but have apparently become infected with transgenes from other, Ooh, other crop that's lines. That's not good news, huh? Yeah. This isn't the first instance of such a seed mix-up, but it turns out that it's leading to a great deal of concern because it's showing just how easily these transgenes can become in- contaminated in the normal lines. Right. Didn't the companies originally assert that 
these genes would not get out of line and remain within their crops only. And, yeah. and there were a lot of incidents in Mexico and right. other countries that have these gene hopping. It's not known exactly how it's occurring. It might be cross-pollination from these crops right. or maybe even just the seeds. So what's the big deal? I mean, are these genes very dangerous? These genes aren't dangerous, but of course, uh, pharmaceuticals and industrial mm -hmm. manufacturers are actually developing plants to mm -hmm. produce drugs or other items. And if those get in the crop lines, then you might get a little Wow, it's nothing get clarity in my tomatoes, huh? <laughs> Maybe more people would eat tomatoes then. <laughs> yeah. If not for the lycopene. <laughs> but this is uh, interesting work, and uh, it was carried out by a group at North Dakota State University and published in the recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Jeff Raskin will talk about the Apple Macintosh. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, 2004 is the 20th anniversary of the Apple Macintosh computer, but the history of this computer is actually a little older, and joining us on Berkeley Rocks today is Jeff Raskin, who started the Apple Macintosh project. Uh, Mr. Raskin, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Well, perhaps you could start by uh, talking about how this project was begun, and uh, perhaps your views on how, how the interface has evolved since then. When I was a uh, graduate student, computer science at Penn State, because of my strong interest in the arts, music and visual art, I was assigned the task of helping people in the computer center, people who were in the fine arts or the liberal arts, and they struggled trying to use the computers. Now, most of the other computer science grad students had the opinion that they were those people who got it and those people who just don't get it. But once I observed them working, I realized it was not the people who were having the problem, it was the fact that the way that our computer systems were designed, that was giving them all, all the problems. And the reason why the people who got it got it is because they had spent a lot of time learning all the intricacies of, of how they worked. And I realized that we should be designing computer systems 
to make them easier to use and that was more important than what I was being taught in my computer science classes, such as how to make programs run in minimal time or minimal space and how to do those trade-offs. All of that is interesting and valuable. I use that information all the time in designing systems, but it was the interface that was clearly most at fault. And this was during the 60s, right? Yeah, I uh, graduated um, in I understand you did some work before you arrived at Apple on the graphical user interface. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. What I did write in my thesis over the objections of my thesis advisor was that computers should be graphic from the get-go. Uh, in those days, everything was all character generators. And I said characters are just a special case of graphics. And I wanted to do music, notation. I wanted to do various languages. And, of course, you couldn't do that on computers in those days. So I had very firmly in my mind the idea of doing of having a computer being graphics based I built my own graphic input device which turned out to be about the same year that Engelbar was developing the mouse and that led to my wanting to design the Macintosh when I worked for Apple because at oh, that time Apple had the Apple II and was working on the Apple III and even the original Lisa was a character generated machine and I was proposing a graphics based machine that I called Macintosh for my favorite kind of apple that grows on trees a lot has been written about Xerox Park's contribution to the user interface. Uh, perhaps you can clarify this a little bit. Well, I was a visiting professor at Stanford at the Artificial Intelligence Lab in, I guess, starting in 1973, and there was sort of a floating population from the AI lab over to the Xerox Park, which started, I believe, in 72. And when I went over to Xerox Park, I found for the first time a population of people who believed, as I did, that users... Human beings have to come first. What do we build computers for except to help people? And it was like finding a home. All these uh, whole groups over there were, were interested in that. The, the contributions of Park are very broad, very deep. Many, many brilliant things were done there. And many of those things later were to appear in the Mac and other com computers. But a lot of the ideas that uh, people say came from Xerox Park, I had already thought of or actually implemented before there even was a Xerox Park. I so see. while we have a big, strong intellectual debt to the work at Park, it's not as though we came in and stole all their ideas. There's a legend that Steve Jobs, uh, at, the, at the end of 1979, went to Xerox Park, saw the Alto, and said, we're going to come back and invent something called the Macintosh. It's been widely reported that way. However, the fact is the Macintosh project was started months before he even went there. So what about current operating systems? Uh, do you have any comments on their interfaces? I'm very disappointed in the Macintosh interface. It's more complex, harder to use than it was when we started. Uh, it's always puzzling people. I, even though I have the latest OS X, I think what they call Panther, the Panther, and it keeps on biting me, crashes once or twice a week. The, the whole system crashes. Individual programs crash pretty often still. But the interface is so complex, there are so many parts to it, that I have to go to other people <laughs> to ask them, how do you do this? And sometimes people come to me, because nobody can understand the whole thing. And of course, you don't get a manual with it. There's no nice manual that leads you through from the, from the beginning and saying, here's what all these different things do, and if you do this, you need to use this secret trick. For instance, um, when my machine behaves too badly, I have to know to, to restart it while holding down command, I have, I'm reading from a cheat sheet that I wrote for myself, command option O and F, and then at the prompt I type reset hyphen NVRAM, and then I have to type on the next line MAC hyphen BOOT, and 
then usually things straighten out. Now, does that sound like a friendly interface? Sounds a bit complicated. It is. Well, you've used machines, and you've used Windows, I'm sure, and I'm sure that you've run into lots of occasions where it did something weird, or you were using Word, everything suddenly changed, and you couldn't figure out how in the world it got there or how you'd get back. Well, right now, I can go back between my Windows machines and my Macs, hardly having to think at all. They're so similar, and they're both quite dreadful. Um, what about speech recognition? Do you see it becoming a part of the interface in the future? That's um, sort of a red herring. Speech recognition is just another input device. The real question is, what are you going to say, and what's the computer going to respond? What does it matter if you have speech recognition or you have to type it in, if you have to know some secret combination of codes to say to get it to do what you want, and if it does things that you can't figure out how to get out of? Speech recognition is just another input device. So for certain applications, yes, it makes them possible. You can be driving along and tell your car to start the windshield wipers without having to take your hands off the steering wheel. But it doesn't really go to the heart of uh, interface. It's sort of a very minor detail compared to the major problems that interfaces have. Hmm. It's interesting that you brought it up because a lot of people do and say, oh, good, speech interface, that will solve everything. And then you go on to one of these speech response systems on the telephone. Press 3 if you want the system to explode. Speech recognition, if used badly, just like anything else, is going to be a nightmare. That's what my current work is all about, how one can use knowledge about cognitive psychology to make interfaces a lot better. Uh, you wrote a book recently, The Humane Interface, uh, discussing the interface between humans and computers. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, first of all, I've been very surprised by the book's reception since it was published, I guess, in 2000. It's had four English printings, now available in nine languages, in Korean, Japanese, Russian, Spanish, German, Dutch. What it does is that it looks at how we can understand interface design based on mostly quantitative things that we know about how human beings work. There has been for over a century now a discipline called ergonomics, which is how we physically interact with machines. For example, you know that you can't make a machine, you can't operate a machine if it requires you to pull a lever down with uh, a force greater than your weight because that will pull you off the ground and the lever won't, won't move. And so ergonomics says you've got to make things that, people, that fit people, that people can handle, that are within the strength, and they find the strength of fingers, the strength of arms, the length of legs, all of which is absolutely valuable to the designer. Well, we can do a lot of that for the operations you have to do in using a computer, the mental operations. We can quantify them, some of them, and at the very least, we should make our computer interfaces in accord with what we know about human mental abilities. Unfortunately, this hasn't been done. And how do you propose we can solve this? Myself and volunteers, and anybody who's listening to this and wants to volunteer can just put my name into Google and uh, send me an email. Oh, I have, have to mention that my name is spelled with one F, J-E-F-R-A-F-K-I-N. And we're building up an interface that uh, is much easier to use, much easier to learn, and is much more productive than any current in interface. We've built a number of these in the past, and they've tested extremely well. It's beginning to get exciting. The most recent thing that the group has done is made it cross-platform, so that it's beginning to run on Windows, Linux, and Macs. When the Macintosh first came out, it only had one mouse button, and today it only still has one mouse button. Um, many PCs, on the other hand, have two or three. Uh, how many buttons do you think a mouse should have now? Well, first of all, it turns out there's a recent study uh, done with over 6,000 part participants or subjects that showed that it is 
mouse use and not keyboard use that accounts for almost all of the repetitive stress injuries that people have when using computers. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never particularly liked the mouse in particular, though I think that graphic input devices are important when you're working in, in graphics. As for the one-button mouse, I observed at Xerox Park, which had a three-button mouse, that people were very confused as to its use. And when I was designing the software for the, for the Macintosh and designing the interface, I figured that if there's only one button, there'd never be any question about what you have to press, the number of ways of using a one-button mouse. I think this probably was a mistake. In fact, there's an appendix in my book which discusses why I think it's a mistake and what I think I should have done. One of the reasons that I made a mistake is that there's a certain school of industrial design dating back to the Bauhaus, which says that designs have to be simple, uncluttered, and clean. Mm -hmm. In particular, don't put writing on them except for brand names or logos. If we had had a multiple button mouse with two keys labeled something like select and activate, it would have been much easier to use. But the idea of putting writing on keys just didn't occur to anybody, including me. So if I were designing one today, it would have two buttons and they would be labeled. The labeling also has the other good effect of forcing software designers to use them as labeled. Otherwise, it's clear that they're being misused. So are these labels static or dynamic? Static. I see. Dynamic labels are a pretty bad user interface mistake. I don't know if that's too long a conversation for here and now. My, my, my book goes into it at some length. It's the same problem as with adaptive menus. There are, well, there have been attempts to make menus where the items that you use most often pop up to the top. But the actual effect, which people hate, Mm -hmm. is that they go and look for the item where it used to be and say, oh, no, it's been changed. Now they have to go find it and they have to unlearn whatever habits that they've developed and it actually slows them down and also undermines the trust you have in a system. Labels that can change on buttons, I've worked on some aircraft cockpits where people propose things like that. There are a couple of problems with that. You don't know what the button does. If you go and reach it again habitually, it does the wrong thing because the name of the button has changed. Also, you're, usually your finger is on the button and obscures the label just when you need it most. There's, there's a fundamental principle that we can only pay attention, conscious attention, to one thing at a time. And when a computer system demands that we attend to two things or more, then we tend to make mistakes. They're called mode errors, and systems have to be designed to avoid that. This has been known for a long time, but the word hasn't gotten around to software designers or software designers, or I should say interface designers, throw up their hands and say, oh, that's not possible to do. Well, that's only because they're not trying hard enough. But mostly when someone's playing an organ or something, there's several sets of keyboards that they have to uh, manipulate at the same time. Uh, wouldn't that be the same complexity we're dealing with? No. Uh, in fact, I do play the pipe organ. I'm known to use two hands and two feet at the same time. And it takes immense amount of practice to be able to do that. And what you do is you've got to reduce most of it to habit. If they suddenly change the keyboard arrangement on the organ, any organist would go crazy. Even if even if there were labels on the keyboard, all the A-flats now turn to E-flats, the little <laughs> light turns from A-flat to E-flat end, it's a disaster. Sounds like a bad practical joke. <laughs> Well, I got a question specifically about the file structure. Um, the ones we use on our computers are based on a tree or hierarchical structure, uh, but there have been other proposals. How do you think these file directories should evolve? But people tend to get lost in hierarchical tree structures. I'm sure it's happened to you when you were trying to find a file on the computer. If you couldn't remember the name, you go tracking down this tree and that tree. And there are better systems. It's the kind of thing which one gets up at the blackboard or one gets out the, the book. So if listeners are really interested, um, take a look at my website, take a look at my book, where it goes 
goes into these matters. The, pro the question is not so much one of what the file structure is, but what mechanisms you have for finding what you want. One really stupid example is file name. Whenever you create file, you're supposed to give it a name so you can find it again. Now, this causes you two huge problems. The first is that when you're putting it away, you don't want to be bothered with having to think of something, and all of a sudden, you've now got to think of something that's short enough to fit in however many characters it is, 31 or some such number. <laughs> and it has to be something that months from now you're going to remember when, when, when you're looking for it. And that's a hard thing to do. Usually name it with some dumb quick name because you want to get on to something else, which is why you're quitting doing that. Then six months later or six days later, when you want to go find it, you can't remember the name. We know that file names don't work. Everybody finds it that they're horrible to use. So what's the solution? The solution is to well, pretty much what Google has done with the web, allows you to search on anything inside or outside. You don't have to know the name of a website or its URL, find something with Google. You just type in some random content that you think might distinguish it from everything else, and more often than not, you find it quickly. Well, the file systems that I've been designing for many years all work that way. Mm -hmm. Instead of just a short name attached to a file, everything is instantly findable by very high-speed searching. Great. Uh, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself, uh, your work at Apple, or your current book? Well, I'm hoping to get some people uh, excited about working on this project, which is all open source, and it's on a CEVS system. And, and right now, computers that are supposed to be our servants are oppressing us. And I know very well how to make them a lot more pleasant, a lot more productive, a lot less confusing, a lot less intimidating, a lot friendlier in short. And I'm hoping that people will come and join the effort, or at least take a look. Mr. Raskin, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Groffs today. Well, thank you for having me. And we were just talking to Professor Jeff Raskin, the creator of the Apple Macintosh. Uh, to find out more about his current work, visit his website at www.jeffraskins.com. That's spelled J-E-F. R-A-S-K-I-N-S This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM Coming up, find out what's in chocolate So stay tuned Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, and now here's Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. Good food, good food. Mysterious this brown stuff is. Chocolate, I love. Mmm. But what is in it? Theorovine, I believe, among other bioflavonoids. Mmm. 
Good food. Good food. Thanks a lot, Yoda. And now here's Lynn with this week's question of the week. She knows that our world is full of acronyms and also in science. <laughs> so the question of the week is, what does laser stand for? So if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. And you won't win any prizes, but you'll see the light. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Box. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. And if you want to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. And for Berkeley Box, this is Lynn Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>